There are a handful of mantras that we say around here at Oasis. Um, sometimes we express our mission as up, in, and out. When we say up, we're talking about our relationship with God and the way in which we worship God. Of course, that is an everyday affair. We're always with God. We're never without God. And we should always kind of be in a spirit of worship, but it gets represented collectively most on Sunday mornings. We come together, we sing, we pray, uh, we uh, hear scriptures read, uh, we give, uh, we listen to sermons. It's, it's an act of worship. Um, up, in, and out. Uh, in is our relationship with one another. So uh, that can happen in a lot of ways. Um, it happens, obviously, most uh, with organic relationships, so your friends or your family, and you come to church with them. It happens in other ways, too, as we serve together. So if you serve on the cafe team, or if you serve as a greeter, if you're in the band, if you're in the tech booth, um, if you volunteer with Upstreet, if you volunteer... Uh, with C5, the youth ministry, if you come out on a second Saturday, you start to form those relationships that are meaningful and lasting because you are kind of living life together or kind of serving together. One of the primary ways that takes place here at Oasis is through life groups, whether it's short-term life groups that are kind of centered around a particular curriculum or activity or long-term life groups. Uh, We have some that have been going practically the whole kind of length of Oasis history. So that's, that's the way we kind of practice church. We kind of live life together. Lastly is out. And that is um, we feel compelled because God loves us that we should love others. And the others doesn't just mean the folks within these four walls, but our community. So whether that's Lakeland or Auburndale or Winter Haven or Mulberry or Plant City or Bartow, this kind of greater community that we're a part of, we want to serve. And so we want to find ways to be with them. So right now, the need's obvious. So you might kind of show up uh, with Josh and others at 820 and serve that way. Or you might come out to a second Saturday and serve that way. And so that's, that's one of the mantras that we like to use, up, in, and out. And it kind of expresses who we are. Another is this. It's a fairly famous one. It's actually borrowed from a man named Rupertus Melodinus. It's often quoted and often erroneously attributed to Augustine. It says, in the essentials unity and the non-essentials diversity and in all things charity. In the essentials unity and the non-essentials diversity and in all things charity. So what does that mean? Well, churches will sometimes argue what's essential. Uh, For us and for the historical church, the essentials were kind of listed in the creeds. So uh, you can look this up, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It kind of says something about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It says something about kind of the church and humanity and what God is up to uh, with his creation. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the essentials. That we, the church has kind of always believed that. We believe that too. We're not trying to kind of start something new here. Uh, we're part of a long kind of old tradition. And uh, we actually imagine that it started at the beginning of time when God created all right, that's, who we're, that's who we're worshiping. And uh, God's plan and God's work, that's what we want to be a part of. On our website, we have another kind of mantra. We say this one a lot as well, and this is what we have designed this series, This Is Us Around. It's when we say, uh, everybody's welcome, 
Uh, nobody's perfect and anything is possible. Now, when we say everybody's welcome, what do we mean? Well, this is what we mean. We mean that the community of Oasis is made up of people from all walks of life. Because we believe God values everyone, we strive to create an environment of total acceptance, radical inclusion, and unconditional love. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, we welcome you with open arms. That's what we mean by everybody's welcome. So what do we mean by nobody's perfect? When we say nobody's perfect, this is what we mean. At Oasis, we don't pretend to know all the right answers, make all the right choices, or understand all the complexities of life. We simply try to follow Jesus closely so we can experience his way of life and bring out the best in each other, in the world around us. Far from perfect, we value authentic living, sincere searching, and open dialogue. And when we say anything's possible, what do we mean? We mean this. When all is said and done, Oasis proclaims the good news of Jesus as a story of transformation and hope, no matter our past circumstances or our present situations. Spiritual renewal and growth can happen by following Jesus and living out his vision of what transpires when heaven comes to earth. As a result, we can not only experience redemption, but we can also partner with God in the divine mission to redeem all things. So everybody's welcome, uh, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. Now, two weeks ago, we started This Is Us, uh, series and Phil preached a sermon on everybody's welcome. It was a masterpiece. Now we've all heard Phil preach scores of fantastic sermons, uh, but in my opinion, at least, even for Phil, that was a fantastic sermon. Whether you were here or if you weren't here, uh, you should go to the website and listen to the podcast. If you were here, you should re-listen to it. If you weren't here, please go and listen to it. It, it is a wonderful articulation of who we are and who we've always been as we say that everybody's welcome. Um, so last week, Phil convinced us, or at least he convinced me, uh, that everybody's welcome. And today, it's my job to convince you that nobody's perfect. <laughs> so if this is clear, you're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome, and you're welcome and you're not perfect, and you're not perfect, and you're not. Oh, thanks for laughing. <laughs> so my family and I started uh, attending Oasis about a decade ago. We came in October of 2007, just after the church had celebrated its, its 10th anniversary. And I was immediately taken by the community. Uh, mostly, I was, I was taken by the creativity and the kind of the presentation of the gospel. I mean, I grew up in church. We went to church all the time. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible study. We went to choir practice. We went to evangelism time. We went to vacation Bible school. I mean, we went to church all the time. And we didn't just go to our church. Sometimes we'd go with my mom's dad. Sometimes we'd go with my dad's uh, mom. Um, we just all the time, we're at church. I mean, my, my dad kind of traveled and spoke some himself. I've been to lots of churches. And, I, and I'd never been to a church quite like this. When I came, I'm like, what is this? The, the, the art, the drama, the, the, the creativity. It just kind of attracted me. 
And then I think it was our second Sunday here was baptism, a baptism Sunday. And I'd never seen a church do baptism quite like Oasis. I'm like, this is a great place. Like, I believe in baptism. And, and I, I hate when it's kind of just an add-on. I mean, I really liked it. And Phil's presentation of the gospel, I'm like, this guy, he's a different type of teacher. And I got to thinking, uh, maybe he's perfect. <laughs> but then I thought, well, nobody's perfect. But, but, but I couldn't immediately see any flaws. It, it, was just, it was just a nice, healthy community kind of presenting the gospel in creative ways that was welcoming and attractive to people. And then I heard something. I heard something about Phil. And it was disturbing. And we say everybody's welcome. And in some ways, he's evidence of this fact. It's not, it's not as funny. I'm, I'm being serious. Uh, th- there's a serious flaw in Phil Grimes. And I know we, we all love him, so we all look past it. But this, this is not just a once or twice mistake. I'm talking about every weekend. Every night, for all I know. It's true. Phil Grimes is a Dallas Cowboy fan. <laughs> Oh, I couldn't believe it. So having, having been born in the Washington, D.C. area, having been raised to love Jesus and the Washington Redskins and to hate the devil and the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> which is not an exaggeration to my, my childhood, and, uh, and uh, I do recognize the, the kind of racial slur that's associated with uh, that professional football team, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. Uh, I did grow up kind of playing what we called at the time Cowboys and Indians. Um, I guess today we call it American Indian, or Native American. But, but um, I, I never played the Cowboy, right? I mean, I grew up in a part of the country where everybody thinks they're a descendant of some kind of Cherokee chief, right? When, when, when Phil's uh, family came over on the Mayflower, my family was already here to welcome them, right? <laughs> This is, this, is, uh, this is my, how deeply rooted that is in me. Uh, so much so that two weeks ago when we, when we had our communion, we had everyone come up and you remember you, you had a label kind of placed on you and it represented the variety of humanity and then you walked through a door and you were welcomed home and someone gave you a hug and then you received the elements of communion and of all those different kind of labels that we used, and we used a wide array trying to make sure we kind of captured kind of race, gender, politics, economics, nationality, kind of the whole broad spectrum of humanity. Some of them said, in addition to cat people and dog people, uh, redskin fan and cowboy fan. <laughs> so that's true. Now, levity aside, um, this statement that nobody's perfect Actually, actually does have deep kind of theological roots and it has important spiritual implications and it calls for a very practical response. So the early church fathers, um, when they talked about the original creation, they did not talk about it as though it were perfect and that humans kind of destroyed it. Uh, they would say that it was good but not perfect. It was good because God created it and God said it was good. And when God created and said it was good, that's different than saying it's perfect. 
Um, that, that particular idea that creation was perfect in the beginning is more akin to um, John Milton's Paradise Lost than it is to Genesis, or how the rabbis read it, or how the early church fathers read it. It was the creation in the beginning was just that. It was creation in the beginning. God said it was good, but it didn't mean that it couldn't be improved upon. Like one of the, one of the first things that are said to humans is that they should care for creation. So part of what it means to be human is to, is to nurture and cultivate the ground so that there's, it, it can be made into better, right? You can beautify the garden. That's, that's part of this, this kind of idea. The idea that somehow a perfect place that had perfect people could ever result in sin and fallenness is a bit of a conundrum. I mean, if the first humans were perfect and they lived in a perfect place, then why did they ever sin? Like, if you're perfect, you're not going to do that. And so Irenaeus, an early church father, has this idea of early humanity as being innocent, kind of naive, um, not knowing right from wrong, right? They, I mean, follow the storyline. They had yet to eat from the tree of the, go- the knowledge of good and evil. If you had not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... What would you not yet have? The knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. So they, they didn't know kind of right from wrong. I mean, they were running around naked. I mean, that should have been a clue. So uh, who in our lives, uh, every chance they get, they run around naked, even in public, and they, they don't really know right from wrong. There's a whole group of people. Yeah, it's not cowboy fans. It's children, right? Children. I mean, they, they, you know, clothes seem optional. Um, they, they have yet to learn right from wrong. The fact that theologically we talk about original sin with the phrase the fall, it means that they didn't have their balance, that they fell. And then God's response to that is not just punishment, judgment for the sake of it, it's correction. It's discipline. God's not surprised when humanity fell any more than we're surprised when our toddlers fall. It's what happens. It's creation in the beginning, and it's going somewhere. And where it's going is the new heaven and new earth. Where it's going is the, the kingdom of God that is coming. So that's, that's where we're all headed, but where we've come from is actually from our origins, not perfection, but goodness. And so we all are kind of in need of growth, of maturity, and because of our finitude and because of our kind of human nature, uh, we all do wrong. We all have wrong done to us. It's one of those kind of theological concepts that are easily provable, right? We've all done things that we wish we hadn't done, or we didn't do something we thought we should have. And if you can't quickly think of one of those for yourself, how hard is it to think of some time when you've been done wrong? Right? It's just readily available. So where is all this headed? Well, God's coming... And that's going to make things right. 
the, the most important ingredient to this kind of plan of God is the incarnation, is the coming of Jesus, is God in the flesh. And in his life, in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection, in his ascension and his throne, that whole kind of Jesus story, we have God kind of bringing this creation with all of its incompleteness towards its completeness, right? Towards its perfection. It is, it's like the most important part. Paul will write about this in his uh, letter to 1 Corinthians as he talks about the, correct, uh, the resurrection in chapter 15. He says this, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. So that God may be all in all. That in the beginning, God wasn't in heaven and he created earth. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are a spiritual reality and a physical reality that overlap and interlock. And it's the, it's the coming of, of heaven, right, of, of God's uh, unmediated uh, presence and spirit and goodness and mercy and love that's transforming the world. It's, it's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we're praying for that. We're hoping for that. We're expecting that, but we're not quite there. We are still in this in-between time of having been created, and even in the work of Christ, as redemption has begun, it's not yet complete. So we are already children of God, but we all still make mistakes. Now, the good news about that is, is that God is not as concerned with our mistakes as sometimes I think we are. God's concerned with the reconciliation between us and God and having reconciled between us then and others. Uh, Paul will say this as well uh, at a different time. In 2 Corinthians, he'll make a reference to um, Jesus Jesus giving us the ministry of reconciliation saying that the Father no longer holds people's sins against them. Uh, that's an interesting, interesting take. So the implications of this then <clears throat> is that we all need to have a bit more patience and latitude with each other. So the fact that nobody's perfect, which is just a reality, means that I'm not perfect and Phil's not perfect and neither are any of you So we need to cut each other a break. So all Christians will, at some point, anticipate a maturity, uh, a sinlessness perhaps even, that we'll eventually grow into. So some parts of the faith tradition think it happens here on earth. Some people think it happens kind of in, in the life to come. But that kind of theological debate aside, uh, Paul, Paul will say this, um, He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the image of 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So um, this might come as a surprise to you. It might not be a surprise that you're not perfect. You, you figured that out already. You will never be perfect. That's, that's not a Christian concept. We, we don't have an idea that somehow, even in the life to come, that we just become God. Like we, we will always be in the capacity to be more like God than we currently are. More loving than we are, more gracious than we are, more forgiving than we are. It's, it's, it's never done. Uh, the, the early church fathers, again, Irenaeus, uh, used the term epicostasis, which means continual growth. We will always, being, and Paul says, being transformed from one glory to another and one glory to another. Always being more and more like Jesus than we had previously been. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his little novelette, The Great Divorce, depicts this as, as a mountain that we can continually ascend without ever reaching the summit. Imagining God's the summit, and we always get closer than we, than we are, but never, never actually accomplishing it. There's always more to learn. There's always more to know. There's always more to grow. That's a good thing. If you, if you completely arrived at some point, then what are you going to do? There's, all, there's always something else. So nobody's perfect, as I said. It's a confession of reality, and it calls us to realize that our own frailty, our own limitations, our own perspective, the, our own, the kind of possibility that our certitude might be misplaced. Uh, and it calls us to be more gracious with one another, which is why we say on the website that we value authentic living, sincere searching, and open dialogue. So I've come to believe uh, what uh, Phil said uh, two weeks ago, that Oasis has always believed, that this revelation that nobody's perfect kind of drives us to be well diggers rather than fence builders. That the best way to get at life and uh, ministry um, and family is, is not to define ourselves at, at our borders in terms of our differences, but at our center in terms of what, what, where life comes from, which is why we have the image of the well. Um, we drink deep, deep from this well. Uh, we seek unity. We value diversity. We prioritize love. Uh, Anne Lee Stanley, he's kind of a popular uh, Baptist preacher from, from uh, Atlanta. Uh, from those of you from an, a little bit older generation will know his father, Charles Stanley, who was another popular Baptist preacher from Atlanta. Uh, Andy got in trouble, in trouble. He got some flack uh, about a year or so ago uh, because he made the statement that the gospel predated the scriptures. That the gospel predated the scriptures. The gospel came first and then came the scriptures. So the gospel is the good news, right? The gospel is the actual event of Jesus' birth and his life and his death and resurrection. And, and not to jump ahead there, his life is kind of what it means to be humans as humans were meant to be. Uh, loving God, 
including others, acts of mercy and forgiveness, kind of speaking out against injustice. This, you know, the, the giving the water, the giving the food, the clothing the naked, the educating the uneducated, the welcoming the stranger, the um, visiting the prisoner, you know, Jesus kind of life. The judge not lest you should be judged, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, um, give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat kind of life. So that, that life that, that we have in Jesus is the gospel. The scriptures then point us to that. And so I bring that up to say this. I think sometimes when we read the scriptures, we do so a little overly sympathetically for ourselves. Like we read the scriptures and we imagine ourselves to be the greatest disciples of Jesus, right? Like, oh yes, I follow the Lord. Like Jesus' disciples were screw-ups, right? They're, they're making mistakes all the time. The ones that were living kind of closest to him. And then we're like, oh, Peter. <laughs> right? They all kind of desert him in his crucifixion. You got, a hand, you got his mom and a handful of women kind of standing at the cross. And, and the beloved disciple is there, yeah. But everybody else ran and hid. Went back to their jobs. Look, nobody's perfect means this. If Jesus were living in Lakeland, there's a better chance that we would be a part of that fickle multitude and crowd that said, hey, let's make him king when he feeds us, and hey, let's crucify him when he gets us in trouble. There's a better chance that we'd be part of that crowd than we'd be like the ideal disciple. I mean, don't think I'm being hard on you. It's worse for me and Phil. We're like the Pharisees, right? We, we're the teachers of the law. We stand up and say, this is what Scripture says. We're in the kind of worst-case scenario. This is one of the reasons why I love the story of uh, the Samaritan woman in John 4. Because it kind of breaks all of our cultural stereotypes. Um, we, we know she's not perfect. I mean, look at her. There's so many things in her life. The Samaritan woman, she's been married five times. She's living with a man who's not her husband. Oh, right. As, as Phil, Phil told us, the boy meets girl at a well story is already kind of scandalous. It's a kind of ancient uh, type uh, trope for the love story. You know, boy meets girl. Boy likes girl. Girl plays hard to get. This boy's not that kind of boy. Things get kind of religious. <laughs> What's happening with this story? But one of the things I love about it is that it's placed right after a story of someone who kind of often gets deemed as perfect or perfect-ish. Right? So we have the story of Nicodemus and we have the story of the woman at the well. And a quick comparison draws a lot of things. Nick comes at night. It's the first episode of Nick at Night. It's a good dad joke. Go with it. The, the woman's there in the middle of the day. We know his name. His name's Nicodemus. Uh, we don't even know her name. She's nameless. Right? So 
We can all say that we care for the homeless and the immigrant, but can you name a homeless person by name? Can you name an, an un, undocumented person by name? Now, we, we're real concerned about the hurricane. Can, can you name somebody that's, that's been displaced because of it? That actually lost their home? He comes at night. He's a Pharisee, right? He's a teacher of the law. He's a PhD. Probably taught at the local Bible college. Pastor to church. He comes, oh, Rabbi, we know you come from God. That's how I imagine Nicodemus spoke. Jesus goes to the well, and the Samaritan woman's like, ah, oh, Jewish guy. What am I going to do? And he's like, hey, can you give me a drink? She's like, no. A Jewish man and Samaritan woman don't drink together. And he says, well, if you know who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. I love her response. Uh, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> like, get out of here, dude. It's the worst pickup line I've ever heard. He said, if you drink my water, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says, all right, let's see. And then, then he starts to kind of prophesy to her, teach her, makes these kind of larger claims. And she's like, ah, listen, we're from two different religions. That's a tough one, right? What in the world is Jesus doing with this woman from a different religion. I mean, don't get me started on that Good Samaritan parable. Right? The, the neighborly person is the person of a different ethnicity from a different religion. Really, Jesus? This story is a great one. Nicodemus, you know says, what must, I be do? what must I do to be, you know, your disciple? And Jesus is like, well, you got to be born of flesh and spirit. And Nicodemus is like, born again? I'm too big. I can't go back into my mom. And Jesus' response, I love this one too. Uh, didn't you say you were a teacher? <laughs> uh, it's a metaphor. That's what Jesus said. <clears throat> it doesn't always get translated that way. But his, his question, aren't you a teacher, is like, keep up with me, Nick. All right, I'm speaking metaphorically here. Into the story, we get these beautiful things to quote, for God so loved the world, right, so we can write it on signs and hold it up at ball games. Um, but where does Nicodemus go? At least in John chapter 3, he disappears back into the night. Where does the woman go? She leaves her bucket and she goes back into town and she tells people, come and see. I don't want to get ahead of myself because next week we're going to preach, uh, Phil's going to preach another sermon on this same text. It'll be brief because of, because of the bash. But we're going to talk about anything's possible. Go.
Good night. We're going to talk about uh, anything's possible. And when we do so, um, hey, nobody's perfect. Right. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll say something about, about her success, right? She's the most successful evangelist in the gospel. Her whole town believes, and it says, we believe because of your testimony. Like to believe because of the woman's testimony. We might not know her name, but we know the effect of her life. Lights will be on here in just a second. Uh, stay with me. Look, Jesus' life and approach would have been, thank you, Rob, uh, would have been scandalous. I can imagine his disciples getting back from town, having probably gotten some bread to go with the water that they're going to get from the well. And they're like, oh, Jesus is talking to a lady. Oh, I think she's a Samaritan. Why did we even come this way? It says this, John says, just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said anything. They didn't say, uh, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? This well story, as I said, was scandalous. But it, it begs us, even though it might confuse us, to not just believe that no one's perfect, but to respond in such a way that we have more space for one another. Jesus' level of inclusion to his fellow Jews and to others was always scandalous. And he did this in some ways, most, um, in a most starking way at the table. He's ready to eat with anybody. And his meals are not just for sustenance. His meals are for celebration. They're for getting the group together. Well, what if you're a Pharisee? Well, Jesus will eat lunch with you. But what if you're a tax collector? Jesus will eat with you too. What if you're a prostitute? Well, then come early. Jesus opens his table and he uses his table to establish the rules of the kingdom. In Judaism, food was held pretty sacred. What you could eat, what you couldn't eat, how it was prepared, who prepared it, what they'd been doing before their preparation. Food was a line that demarcated us from them. And Jesus takes that same symbol of food and he transforms it. And it's still an us, but he kind of makes the them just disappear. Everyone is welcome, even though nobody's perfect.